Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Hey, we are in Acts chapter 13. If you guys want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. And we're going to pick it up. We, we started Acts chapter 13 last week. We're going to pick it up at verse 13. And we're going to go through the rest of the chapter. Verse 13 through 52, I call this portion the core truths of the gospel. The core truths of the gospel. But before we dig into verse 13, I want to just draw your attention to a few passages of scriptures. Um, you can turn there if you want. Actually, I had them up on my notes, but uh, let me try it one more time, just, just for giggles, just to see if it'll come up. Yeah, I don't know what the deal is. Okay, anyways. All right. So the first one is in Acts chapter 9, verse 27. Acts chapter 9, verse 27, Saul had already accepted the Lord. Uh, he had gone up to Tarsus, and from Antioch, Barnabas went up to find Saul. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 27, now uh, Barnabas took Saul and brought him down to Jerusalem. And so in Acts 9, 27, it says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Then in Acts chapter 11, verses 29 and verse 30, through verse 30, it says, Then the disciples each, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. You'll notice who's first, Barnabas and Saul. Then over in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, Now in the church uh, that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. You'll notice who's first mentioned, Barnabas. Acts chapter 13, verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said to me, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. I don't know if you're catching a theme there, but Barnabas is predominant in all these verses that I read. But look at verse 13 of Acts chapter 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Did you catch that? It switched from Barnabas to Paul. Barnabas was predominant in all these other places. Now Paul and his party. And you've got to wonder, what, you know, what's, what's going on here? Well, the Lord, if you, as we go through the rest of the book of Acts, Paul is predominant. Uh, it's, it's the Holy Spirit working through Paul, mainly as we go through most of those chapters uh, in, the, in the rest of the book of Acts. So you wonder, what, what, how did Barnabas feel about that? Well, it appears that Barnabas didn't mind being second. Barnabas didn't mind taking a back seat and allowing Paul to lead as the Lord had called him. You know, that's, a, that's an interesting issue because sometimes we have trouble being second, don't we? We have trouble kind of taking a step back and letting someone else take the glory or someone else be more predominant in whatever. Maybe it's in a ministry or in any situation. So the question for each of us is, can you be second? Can you be second? So it says there at the end of verse 13, and John, 
departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. We, we, we talked about John last week. He's John Mark. He's actually the writer of the Gospel of Mark. He was a young man when Jesus Christ was crucified. He, it's not that much older at this point in, 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 this, uh, in this time during Acts chapter 13. But, you know, I just think of the importance of calling. Here, Barnabas and Paul were called to this ministry. John Mark was not necessarily called, but he came along to assist uh, Paul and Barnabas. And so, it, you know, it's, the question is, well, why did he leave? What caused him to leave? We'll be dealing with that as we get later on through some more chapters. There's actually be an argument over John Mark later on. Well, why did he leave? Well, they came to Pamphylia, Pamphylia, which the, actually the name means all tribes. And Pamphylia, I had a really cool map to show you, but you'll have to look it up later. It's a coastal region on the southern shore of Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. And it's about an 80-mile stretch east and west and about a 20-mile uh, wide strip of land. And behind it is the Taurus Mountains. They're very steep and they're very rugged. And because it was just a narrow coastal plain, um, there's no big cities there that they ministered to. There's nothing really of, of note that's mentioned here. And being a narrow coastal plain, it was unpleasantly hot and humid. And for those of us that are from Minnesota, we know what hot and humid equals, right? Mosquitoes. And there were mosquitoes there. So it's a narrow strip of land. There's mountains behind it. And it's right on the coast there. And historically, for many, many years, that was a haven for pirates. <laughs> Seriously, it was a haven for pirates. Um, now, the Romans, they, they knew about this, and so they started coming down there and kind of cleaning up house, at least on the seas. And by about 67 B.C., the sea was pretty much safe from pirates. The Roman armies have pretty much taken care of that issue, but the land was another story. See, those mountains were steep, they were rugged, and there was a lot of isolated spots there, and it was a haven for robbers and thieves. And so, if you notice, when we're reading about Paul, Paul always has a group of men with him. And the reason why, probably not only because of the spiritual aspect, but also the safety aspect. Because you don't want to be traveling through a region with robbers all by yourself. In fact, what historians say is even small groups of people would gather with larger groups of people. I mean, as many people as you could get, because that would reduce the chance of getting mugged in the mountains of Taurus. And so, so there's the issue of danger. Maybe that's why John Mark wanted to leave. Maybe it was the hot and humid climate. I mean, they had just left Cyprus, right? Cyprus was on the ocean. They had that nice, cool ocean breeze, kind of tropical, you know, uh, nice place to go to. Uh, Barnabas, his uncle, was actually from Cyprus originally, and so the, he probably had family, probably knew people. He was very comfortable and familiar with the terrain and knew where to go, knew where the good restaurants were, you know, things like that. And uh, now they're getting to this place that's strange. They don't know. It's hot. It's humid. The mosquitoes are biting like crazy. And that whole region they were traveling through is known as Galatia. And in Galatians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul writes this to the church in Galatia. He says, You know that because of physical infirmity, 
I preached the gospel to you at first. Well, many people believe that Paul, when he was in that region of Pamphylia, actually contracted malaria from the mosquitoes, and he was deathly sick. William Barclay describes this malaria as producing a terrible pain that was like a red-hot bar thrust through the forehead. It kind of gives you a little image of what, uh, what it felt like. And the Galatian city of Pisidian Antioch, which they're going to, was about 3,600 feet in elevation above the sea level. So, you know, they're down here where the mosquitoes are. It's hot and humid, and they're going to be going through this rugged terrain where there's robbers and thieves. Probably not safe, you know, going up these mountains to Perga at a higher elevation. It's possible that they went there so that Paul could recover from his malaria. So you have the combination. You've got excessive heat, rugged terrain, gains of robbers, Paul's illness. All these things may have contributed to John Mark going, you know what, uh, this isn't for me, man. I wasn't called to this. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Also, up until verse 13, good old Uncle Barnabas is leading the group. Hey, it's my uncle, man. He's leading the group, you know. And Uncle, uncle Barnabas is known as the encourager. He's the nice guy. Paul, on the other hand, was intense. You can just read that in his letters, man. He took no prisoners, man. He's got a mission, and he's going to go do it, and he doesn't, he doesn't care what happens to his life, man. He's a drink offering poured out to the Lord. And so Paul was all about business. Uncle Barnabas, well, he's a little bit more tenderhearted. He's a little bit more compassionate. It might be, you know, he cuts John Mark a little slack once in a while. And uh, now Paul is leading it. So maybe that's another factor. John Mark's like, man, this guy is, he's, I don't want to be under his leadership, man. He's too harsh. And so all of those things could have combined to cause John Mark to abandon the trip. Of course, Scripture doesn't tell us, so it's up to our imagination to imagine why. You know, it's easy to serve the Lord when it's comfortable. I know that from experience. When it's comfortable, when it's convenient, man, I'll serve the Lord day and night, 24 hours a day. But when it gets a little difficult, or when there's some opposition, or when it's safe to, or when there's not much sacrifice required of me, man, I can, I can, I can serve all the time. But when those things start, when it becomes more of a sacrifice, when it's maybe not a safe place, or maybe when it's very uncomfortable, when I'm stretched beyond what I normally feel comfortable doing, man, that's another story. We'll, get, we'll be talking about John Mark more later. We'll pick it up at verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to, to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. We'll stop right there. It was customary in those days in the synagogues to invite, if you had a visiting rabbi that came, you would, it was customary in those synagogues to say, hey, do you have anything you want to share with the group? Or if they were distinguished guests, it was a way to show hospitality, and maybe it was a way to break up the monotony. Man, this guy's kind of boring. Let's get some fresh blood in here. Hey, you have anything you want to share? I remember one time when we first started out, we were in a hotel, uh, the Red Carpet Inn, is that, no, not the Red Carpet Inn, the, uh, what was the name of it? 
La Quinta Hotel. Yeah, the La Quinta Hotel. And, uh, you know, we got a good relationship over time. But, you know, we, at first they had us in this little, it was like one of their little breakfast rooms, like it was a little empty room, and we were meeting in there. And, uh, and this lady came walking by in her PJs, and she walks in there, hair's all a mess, and she goes, oh, I thought this was the breakfast thing. Oh, like, no, we're at church, we're setting up. We used to get visitors all the time. You know, sometimes you go, man, that's a bummer having to meet in a hotel. At that time, ministry was awesome because people were always going, oh, there's a church here. Let's go in. And so we got to meet many people that way. Well, this lady, she said, oh, well, I'm going to come back. And so um, when we started the service, she came back. She didn't look much different than when she dressed. When she, I mean, seriously, I remember that. You remember that, Teresa? She looked just like, okay, she's here. And she was sitting in the back. And at the end, I did kind of what they do in the synagogues. If anybody has something to say, do you want? And this lady raises her hand. And, and I had just been going through the New Testament. She goes, we should not listen to Paul. And he's, she's going on. And I'm like, oh, brother, what did I just do? You know, I just opened up a can of worms. I bet you these guys kind of felt the same way. It's like, what did we just do having this, this guy stand up there? You know, this is one of those divine appointments that the Holy Spirit gives. Hey, if you have anything encouraging to share, would you like to share? Have you had someone say that to you? Hey, do you have anything you could share? Do you know the meaning of life? I was working in a, in a, in a, in a place, cleaning a place, and I come up to this lady, and she knew I was a pastor because I bumped into her once before. And it's late at night, and she says, you're a pastor, right? And I said, yeah. She goes, can you tell me how to know God's will? And I'm like, Ding. yeah, sure, we can talk about that. And I spent a half hour sharing the gospel with her. But anyways, that was a while ago. You know, the Lord gives us those divine appointments every once in a while. And Peter writes this in 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And so, you know, Paul the Apostle, man, he's just like, man, this is an open door. And he walked through that open door. And so he says, men of Israel and you who fear God. So now, men of Israel and you who fear God. Now, the men of Israel feared God too, but the men who fear God is referring to Gentiles. These were known as proselytes. These were Gentiles that saw Judaism. They saw everything that happened with the synagogues and everything. They're like, we want to, t we want to become Jews. And so they would be, they were, they were like the seekers. You know, people go to churches to seek. And they were the seekers of their day. And Luke records of, uh, Paul's message, and it was a powerful message. In fact, it was so powerful, you know what the result was? It, the, towards the end, it says, The Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Man, they wanted to hear more. And then it says, On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of Paul. That's amazing. A couple observations. First of all, Paul's message is very similar to Peter's message in Acts 2 at the day of Pentecost. There's, some very, there's quite a bit of similarities. There's also quite a bit of similarities to Stephen's message in Acts chapter 7 before he was martyred for his faith. The audience is pretty much the same. There's Jews and proselytes. But even if a different people or a different uh, emphasis is made, the core gospel is the same. And that's what I want to look at this morning. This is tailored to a Jewish audience. They know all that Paul's talking about. But the core gospel, man, it's, it, it's universal. It's universal. There's no discrepancy on how a person is saved from their sins. There's no, well, this is one way and this is another way. No, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me.
Paul may probably have not heard Peter's message, but you know what? He heard Stephen's message. He, heard it. he was standing there holding the coats for those that were going to pick up stones to kill Stephen. He heard the message, and it probably burned into his memory. I like what the Lord says in Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. When you share God's words with someone, God's words, not your words, when you share the Bible with someone, scriptures, the Holy Spirit uses that. And it penetrates people's hearts, and obviously it must have penetrated Paul's heart. That's a first observation. There's a very, quite a bit of similarity between those three messages, the two messages in Paul's. The second thing is something that I stumbled across on some of the commentaries. A lot of, the, or not to say a lot, but some of the commentaries say that Luke recorded the Reader's Digest version of Paul's sermon. That it wasn't, it wasn't the whole message. He obviously expounded much more, but but for sake of clear or sake of briefness, uh, Luke kind of boiled it down to just you know what we're reading here. I don't necessarily agree with that, although I don't know. I'm not an expert. But these are my thoughts. First of all, they're guest speakers. So how much time would you give a guest speaker unless they're, you know, they're doing the whole service or not? And the adage, less is more. I don't know if you ever heard that before. Less is more. I think it fits here. Listen, if Paul had gone on and on and on and on, do you think the people would want to come back to hear more? If, I mean, if he expounded everything there was to know, would they go, okay, I guess we got it all. You know, it, it, so, but they wanted to come back to hear more. So I don't think he shared, I think what he shared is what we're reading right here. The fact that they asked him to come back and speak the next, mind, the next Sabbath, in my mind, is because it was brief, just what we're reading. And you know, sometimes less is more when you're sharing with people. It's just a little bit, you know, you don't want to give too much, just give them enough to whet their appetite so they'll come back. I think that's what Paul did. And here's another point here. The core gospel does not need to be dragged out. It doesn't need to take 50 minutes to explain or even 50 hours to explain. Can you imagine if someone was dying and they said to you, you know, how, how do I go to heaven? How, how can I have that assurance that when I die, I'm going to spend eternity with Jesus Christ? And you spent 50 minutes with him to share the gospel, but he only had five minutes to live. You know, you can share the gospel in under five minutes. You can share the, go the core. Now, of course, Paul is expounding and stuff, but I, I didn't time it. But if you read it, I'm sure this is less than five minutes if you read this, those verses. You can share the core gospel with someone in less than five minutes. Now, speaking about this message that we're going to read here in just a minute, bear in mind Paul is speaking to a Jewish audience and it's including Jew, uh, Gentiles that are seeking Judaism. They, they, they want to become part, uh, they want to become Jews, basically, religious Jews. He's not speaking to a pagan audience. So the people that he's speaking to, the, it's catered to the Jewish mind. They're familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. They're familiar with the history of Israel. And they're familiar with the promise of a coming Messiah. So that's the context of what Paul is saying here. But again, the core truths, they don't change. They're the same. So verse 17, he says, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. 
And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out. So God initiated a relationship with the children of Israel. Abram was a idolater over in, in Mesopotamia. God came to him. He didn't go, I, I need to find God. No, no, no. He wasn't even looking for God. God came to him. God revealed himself to the children of Israel. God pursued the children of Israel. God guided them. God provided for them. God protected them. And here's the first gospel truth that is universal. God is love. God loves you. You can say that to any person alive on this planet. God loves you because it's true. God had a plan and a purpose for the children of Israel. And God has a plan and a purpose for each one of us. And that plan and that purpose. Now, there's some, some things in our lives. You know, God called me to be a pastor. He maybe didn't call you to be a pastor. Maybe he's called you to just be an a engineer working at a company, you know, or a, or a housemaker or, or a father or a, or a mother. God's called people different things. But one thing that God has called all of us to, and that's to experience peace with God through Christ Jesus. Everybody, that's, that's, it's a universal calling. And he also has a plan and a purpose for us to receive eternal life. So the first core thing, God loves the world. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves you. Verse 18, Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. I looked that up. That, what does that mean, put up with their ways? It means that God, God was patient with their idiosyncrasies. God was patient with them. But, you know, there's some translators that translate that word to feed in the sense of nursing an infant, that God fed them, God nursed them. And, you know, both are true. God was patient with the children of Israel as they grumbled and complained. You can read that. And if you're reading through Exodus, you've probably come across that many times. And he also continued to feed them manna in the wilderness for 40 years, even while they were complaining, even while they were grumbling. That's the grace of God at work. God is so gracious in our lives. Verse 19, And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. The nations, you can actually read about them in Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. It's the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Those are the seven nations. So the question is, why would God destroy, I mean literally, wipe them out, kill them? Why would God, a loving God, want to destroy those nations? If you want to know why, read Leviticus chapter 18 and Deuteronomy chapter 18. And you'll get a pretty good picture why. First of all, they were sexually immoral. And not just sexually immoral in the sense of they had affairs with one another or adultery. It included incest, bestiality, and homosexuality. And I, I, I know there's children here, so I won't go into detail. But it was really bad. They also were involved with the occult, which included witchcraft, casting spells, seances, fortune-telling, and sorcery. So sexual immorality, the occult, child sacrifice. They would take their baby infants and they would have a burning hot uh, idol, a bronze idol called Molech with its arms outstretched. They would take their little baby infant and lay it in the burning 
on the burning arms to completely just burn the child, to kill the child. The Bible calls it passing their children through the fire. They did that. That's what those nations did. God was patient with them, and he waited 400 years to repent, and they didn't repent. And so God's patience ran out, and he said, okay, it's, they, need to, they, they, need to be, they need to be taken out. The reason God didn't want these nations in the land that he was giving to the children of Israel because he knew that the practices that they were doing would turn the people's hearts away from him. So the first core point I mentioned, God loves mankind. What's the second core truth? Man is a sin problem. The Bible says sin separates us from a holy God. Sin destroys lives. Sexual immorality destroys lives. It can, des it can destroy an individual in the form of a sexually transmitted disease, but also it never satisfies. And the person who's given over to sexual sin, if left unchecked, it will always devolve and become more and more degrading, more and more debased. Why? Because it never satisfies. And sexual immorality is a lie from the pit of hell. It really is. It also destroys relationships. It cheapens, or the Bible calls profanes, the lifelong commitment of a husband and a, and a wife in the covenant of marriage. It destroys that, and it also destroys the nurturing stability of the family that children need so desperately. And you look at our nation, with so many fatherless families and they're, they're, the, the young men are just, they're going to crime. It's terrible. So sexual morality is destructive. Verse 20. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. So I know that some of you women are going through the judges Bible study. God told the children of Israel if they failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land, their hearts would be turned away from them. He knew it. He warned them, you need, to, you need to get rid of these people because they'll turn your hearts. Well, they didn't get rid of all of them, as you read in the book of Judges, and in, probably in the book of Joshua too. And exactly what happened in the time of Judges is that they failed to completely drive out the inhabitants of the land, and they started adopting the practices of the nations around them. In fact, there's one key phrase in the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Verse 21, And afterward they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Listen, God had miraculously delivered the children of Israel. God miraculously provided for them in 40 years in the wilderness. His presence was with them the whole time. You know, while God was guiding the children of Israel, he was striking fear into the heart of the Canaanites. They were afraid of Israel because of God. They were, they, they, and then God gave them victorious battles. But because of sin, they turned their backs on the Lord and were defeated by their enemies over and over and over again. And eventually they would get to a point where they were so miserable, they were so defeated, they would cry out to the Lord, and God would say, hey, you got what you deserve. No. God would send his judges. Judges, not to judge them. A judge was a deliverer. God would send a deliverer. Man, how gracious God is. Even when we blow it left and right and over and over again, God still is gracious to each one of us. And so God would deliver them through 
a human judge, a, a deliverer. You see, they didn't want God's best for them. They didn't want God to lead them. They want to be a nation under God. They wanted to make. They wanted to be just like all the other nations. We want a king that we can look at, and you know that's our king. That's what they want. They didn't want God to lead them. You know, sin is deceptive. God's will in your my, in your life and my life is always best. It's always best. God knows what's best for us, but sin is deceptive. It deceives us and makes us think that our way is better. Ah. I can do this, you know. Ah, I want that. Well, Saul, they got a king. God gave them the king that they wanted. Saul, he looked like a king. He was taller, head and shoulders above everybody else. He had that king look to him, you know. He started out humble. He was seeking the Lord, but then he disobeyed the Lord, and he got worse and worse and worse. Saul started out well, but he didn't finish well. And you know, when you and I don't repent of sin, that could be the same story for us. We could have started out well, but we won't finish well. Verse 22, And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Saul looked the part of a king. He initially acted the part of a king, but God saw his heart. David, on the other hand, didn't look like a king. He didn't look like a king so much that when Samuel the prophet came and said, hey, God wants to raise up one of your sons to be a king, uh, he brought all the sons. He said, well, it's going to be that guy. No, it's going to be that guy. Because yeah, I don't know how many brothers he had, like five brothers or something like that. They didn't even think of bringing David in. They'll run to the family. He's out there taking care of the sheep somewhere with his harp. You know, He's out there just... He didn't look like the part of a king. But God saw his heart. And that is an interesting concept. God says, I've chosen David, a man after my own heart. When you look at David's history, he was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He arranged for the murder of a man. How can he be a man after God's own heart? There's a difference between Saul and David. When Saul was confronted with his sins, you know what he did? He made excuses. Well, this is why I did this. When David was confronted with his sins, he owned it and repented of it, which means he turned away from it. You see, we're all sinners. I got a news for you this morning. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners, but we're not all repenters. Some of us are living in sin. We haven't repented. We haven't turned away from that sin. A man after God's own heart is not sinless, but he's a sinner who confesses and repents. And again, repenting is turning away. And because repenting means turning away from your sins, you sin less. You sin less. And so core truth, God loves man. Second core truth, man has sinned. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, what's the third core gospel truth? And that's this. God did something about sin. God did something. God provided salvation by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin. Listen, even while the nation of Israel continued in their rejection of him and the rebelliousness against him, 
And you can read it all the way through the Old Testament and the Minor Prophets. They, they just kept turning their back on the Lord. But during that entire time, God was still at work. God hadn't given up on them. God was, in, was preserving the lineage of David. God had promised a Messiah and he would deliver and a Messiah would be born through the line of David. The Bible says in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, God isn't waiting for you to clean up your act so you can become a Christian. God knows that you can't clean up your act apart from him. Yet God still sent his son to die on the cross for us. So now, if you can imagine, remember I shared about it, I'm in this hotel and I asked this lady if she, you know, if anybody wants to say something and she raises her hand and she starts talking and I don't, I don't know, I don't know if anybody was looking at my face, but my, my heart just stopped. I'm like, what did I just do? You know, I'm like, ugh. And I can imagine the Jewish audience in this synagogue right now. Hey, Dan, you want to have a word of encouragement? This guy looks like a rabbi. He stands up and uh, he starts sharing. And you know, is he sharing their history? Up until this point, they didn't have any issue with it. They knew that history. They agreed with that history, right? God had chosen the patriarchs to be his people. God had delivered his people from bondage in Egypt. He had given them the land of Canaan. He chose David as their king. But then David skips the rest of their history and starts talking about the promised Messiah. Again, they all knew that God had promised a Messiah. In fact, they were waiting for the coming Messiah. And at this point, you could probably see the expressions on their faces of confirmation and agreement. They're probably like, amen, brother. You can say, you know, keeps Tolson like, okay, what's he going to say? You know, apprehension. I wonder what, what's coming up next. Verse 23. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. You know, no matter how you share the gospel with anyone, no matter how you share the good news with them, there's no gospel message without Jesus Christ. You, can't, you just can't get around it. And I think a look of shock probably started to show up in these faces like, what? And so Paul quickly supports what he just declared by pointing out to them what John the Baptist declared. Look at verse 24. After John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel... And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not he. That's referring to the Messiah. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. So he's talking about John the Baptist to these people in, uh, in Pisidia of Antioch, or Antioch, Pisidia in Antioch. Those people evidently were familiar with John the Baptist. He had quite a reputation. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, Paul's going to encounter some followers of John the Baptist in Ephesus, which is Asia Minor. So they knew about John the Baptist. And the Jews knew that Malachi, if you go to the last, uh, the last uh, uh, minor prophet, actually it's the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi had prophesied that Elijah would come before the Messiah, that he would be the forerunner. In fact, in Matthew chapter 17, the disciples are sitting around Jesus and they say, hey, Master, why do, the, why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? And Jesus says, but I say to you that Elijah has come already and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. 
It says, then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So these guys are familiar with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist himself testified, I'm not the Christ. But then remember when he saw Jesus coming, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They, he was pronouncing, this is the Messiah, the promised Messiah. Verse 26, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and, the, and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Now, the Jewish people knew uh, the scriptures of a promised Messiah, and yet they failed to see Jesus as the fulfillment of that prophecy. Why? Because they were looking for somebody who looked like a Messiah. They were looking for a political Messiah. They were looking for someone of standing and influence who had that Messiah look about him. Not a carpenter's son from Nazareth of all places. And he had no formal training. He had never been taught under any of the renowned rabbis of his day. So he didn't have any pedigree, any background. You know, it's interesting for those of you that have read through Exodus, and maybe you, if you're not going through Exodus, and if you interest about this, or if you don't know about this, in Exodus, God gives Moses the instructions for building the tabernacle. And if you look at the tabernacle, it's a picture of Jesus Christ. If you look at the furniture in the tabernacle, it's a picture of Jesus Christ. If you look at the, 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 the clothing of the priests and everything, they all point to Jesus Christ. But you know what the last covering of the tabernacle is? It's badger skin. So everything, there's gold on the inside. There's, uh, you know, uh, lambs, uh, lamb skin dyed red. I mean, there's all these different layers, these coverings over this tent, basically, where the presence of the Lord was on the inside. But if you looked at it from the outside, if you're walking around, you go, well, there's a Bedouin tent. It's just black. I mean, it's just, it's like, it just looks like any other tent. And yet, God's presence was in there. Well, the same with Jesus. Jesus didn't look like a Messiah. You know, we have like these pictures where it's always like this glow. If, you know, the Catholic churches have that glow behind Jesus. I don't think he walked around with this halo. You know, it's like, oh, there he is. I spot him, you know. He's got that look. He looked like you or me. He looked like any one of us. Jesus didn't meet the religious leader's expectation of a, what a Messiah would look like or what he was from, just like David. Just like David, his ancestor, no one expected him to be king of Israel. But what Paul is pointing out is even their rejection of him was prophesied in scriptures. You know, it's an interesting observation I was making as I was preparing here. The Jews, they heard the law and the prophets every week in the synagogue, every Sabbath. The reciting of the Ten Commandments, the, the reciting of the law of Moses, um, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, they knew the scriptures backwards and forwards, and yet they missed the heart of the message. Isn't that sad? I mean, they, were, they, were, they would know scriptures better than any one of us sitting here, and yet they missed, they missed God's heart in it. I've encouraged you and I, myself, all of us to read through the Bible this year. Many of you took up that challenge to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm so thrilled by that. My prayer is that you wouldn't just read the Bible and become more knowledgeable about God, but you'd start understanding the heart of God. 
Because that's, that's the purpose for reading it. It's not just I want you to read through the Bible so you can quote. No, it's so that you can know the heart of God. Because that's the only way you know the heart of God is by reading his word. Verse 28. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when he had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. Here's the fourth gospel truth. It's universal. You can share it with anybody. And that's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. That's core. Jesus, who was sinless, was crucified and died on a cross to pay the penalty for my sin. Again, I mentioned there's no gospel message without Jesus Christ, and there's no hope for us without the resurrection. If Jesus had just died, okay, he just died, but he rose from the dead. There's hope for us. Verse 31, He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are witnesses to the people. And we declare to you, glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled for us their children in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul would write later on in Corinthians, he would list all the different people that were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They saw the resurrected Lord. At one point there was almost, or there was 500 people at one point. All these people, except for uh, what James the apostle had been, James one of the disciples had been killed by this time. But all the rest of them were still alive at this time. Anyone could go up to these guys and say, hey, did you really see Jesus? There were five, over 500 eyewitnesses that say, yes, we saw Jesus risen from the dead. Their witness could still be corroborated. Now in verse 33, Paul quotes from Psalm 2. And the Jews that are listening to Paul, they knew that Psalm 2 was a messianic psalm. They, they understood that that was a psalm prophesying the Messiah. And the psalm talks, talks about the reign of the Lord's anointed and how the nations and the rulers are plotting to do with, away with him. And then it says, uh, today I have begotten you. And Paul's using that quote with reference to, to not, not a cult thing like Jesus was you know, created at that point. No, it's re- with reference to his resurrection. Let me read this to you. Romans 1 verse 4. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so that's, what Paul, that's why Paul uh, said that. Today I have begotten you. Verse 34. And that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus. I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. So Paul's quoting from a couple different passages here. He's first quoting from Isaiah 55 verse 3 and says this, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Paul's point is, God fulfilled his merciful promise by providing them the Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he quotes from Psalm 16. And Psalm 16 is a miktam, which basically means it's a poem of David. And in that poem, he quotes, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. 
And what Paul's point is, David's writing this, and you could say it's a poem of David, Psalm of David, and he's writing a poem of David, and he's writing about himself. But Paul's point is, hey, David, he died. He saw corruption. But in order to be the Messiah, the Holy One, even though he would die, as is prophesied there in Psalm 16, he would not remain in a tomb. And Paul's point is, here, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Verse 38, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. You know, not only is forgiveness of sins available because of Christ's shed blood for you and I, but justification is also available to us because Jesus rose from the dead. Romans 4.25, Paul says, who was delivered up because of our offenses and raised because of our justification. You see, because Jesus rose from the dead, that proves that his sacrifice was accepted. If it wasn't accepted, we'd, we'd have a tomb that you and I could go to Israel and visit Christ's tomb and see, the, see where his body lay. There's an empty tomb there, by the way. You know, it's one thing to be forgiven, but to be justified is just like you never sinned. It's just like you never did it. Have you ever sinned against someone? You ever did something wrong against someone and you go to them and you say, I'm sorry, and they say, yeah, I forgive you, but you know, there's pain there, right? Because you've, you've caused some hurt. And, and, and yeah, you know you're forgiven, but you still feel guilty. You still feel terrible. I can't believe I did that. You feel lousy. See, we're forgiven by Christ's blood, but we're also justified. That means the stain of your sin, the guilt, it's taken away by his resurrection. That's beautiful. It's beautiful for us. For the Jews listening to Paul, this was totally radical. Why? Because the Jews thought that they were justified by keeping the law of Moses. But even back in Genesis, before the law was even given, God gives a promise to Abraham that he's going to have a son. Abraham, the Bible says, believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. That was way before the law ever came. He was justified just by faith in Christ Jesus. What was the reason for the law then? The reason for the law was meant to reveal our inability to keep the law. It was to show us that there's no way we could keep the law. Galatians 3.24, Paul says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. You try keeping those laws. You might keep one maybe two, maybe nine of them. You can't keep all of them. And the Bible says if you've broken one commandment, you've broken, you're guilty of all. You're guilty of violating the law, period. So there was no way. And so the, the law was meant to show us that we need a Savior. It was, to, it was to bring the Jewish people to the point where they go, we, we need that Messiah. We can't be justified through keeping the law. The fifth core gospel truth that you can share with anybody, salvation is by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross for sin. The finished work. John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. Faith in what Christ already did. Verse 40, Beware therefore, 
lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work in which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So this is an Old Testament prophecy speaking about a people that would reject the message of the Messiah. And and Paul's like, you guys are it. Verse 42, so when the Jews went out of the synagogue, because there were some that were like, man, this this guy's wacko. When the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. That's a powerful message. When you could draw all of Rochester, man, we got to hear what this guy has to say. How did they? How did the whole city find out about it? Those that were there, they shared. Man, I got to tell you what I've just heard. They shared the gospel with people around them. They spent that week spreading the good news. You know the gospel. The word actually is euangelion. Uh, excuse me, euangelion. I'm not pronouncing it right. Anyways, it means good news. That's what the gospel means and the gospel is good news, it's powerful to transform any one of our lives. Verse 45, But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. You know, envy is a very powerful thing. Envy is very powerful. Now, not all the Jews, because some of them believed But certain Jews were filled with envy, and it says they opposed the gospel. You know, when you and I are envious of someone, that's an open door for the enemy. That's a tool. That's one of the tools in Satan's arsenal to use to cause disruption, to cause strife, to cause division, to, to break up unity among the body of Christ. Envy is sin. You know, I think Barnabas probably had an opportunity to envy Paul's leadership. Maybe that was a temptation. I can't believe, why is he getting all the recognition? Why is he making all the decisions? But he was willing to lay that aside and minister in a second place next to Paul's leadership. Verse 46, Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. That's an interesting verse there. As many as been appointed to eternal life believed. Because in that verse 48, we see predestination. Predestination. But we also see man's volition. Man's free will. I like what Ray Steadman said. Now do not turn that around. That does not say as many as believed were ordained to eternal life. You see, Paul began this message by showing them that God was active, trying to reach out to men. It's not men who are trying to find God. It is God who is trying to find men. And when men believe, 
They are simply responding to the activity of God who is already reaching out to them. Here were many who were ordained of God, and when they were thus ordained, they believed they responded to God. You can never get away from this wonderful, mysterious combination of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. You see, predestination's in the Bible, but so is free will. I, I see it in I see it both. And I can't sit here and go, well, this is exactly, I can't explain it to you. It's a mystery. And I think that's both true, and I think you see that here. Verse 50. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from the region. That's going to happen more and more for Paul and Barnabas, by the way. Verse 51. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and came to Iconium. Whenever there's a genuine work of the Lord, there's going to be spiritual opposition. The enemy does not want the good news to get spread out. There's going to be spiritual opposition. And so Paul and Barnabas, they shake off the dust from their feet against them. It's, it's, it's very picturesque. It's like, okay, you, okay, you reject it? That's fine. We're going to move on. Jesus Christ had told his disciples to do that. When you go into a city and they reject it, then just shake off the dust. And, and, and it's just basically a word picture for them. Listen. Your and my job as believers is just to present the gospel. That's all we have to do. And you can do it in under five minutes. Just present the gospel. It's the Spirit's job to convict and convince their heart. If you share the gospel and someone completely rejects you, okay, I did what I was supposed to do. It's up to you. I can guarantee the Holy Spirit's going to be doing work in that person's heart. Why? Because God's word won't return void. And there's probably other people praying for him. You just keep praying for him and... You, you let them go. Allow the Holy Spirit. You're, you're never going to convince someone into the kingdom. If you do convince someone into the kingdom, somebody else is going to convince them out of the kingdom. It's just, it's got to be a work of God in a person's heart. We can't do it. It's our job to present the gospel. It's the Spirit's job to convict and convince. Verse 52, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So, I was in North Carolina this past week, and uh, one of the churches that I connected with, I went to his web, their website, and I was reading, you know, what do they believe and stuff. And they have this quote in here. They say, the initial evidence of being filled with the Spirit is speaking in tongues. Now, it's interesting to me. By the way, I do believe in the manifestation of the gift of, the, of, of tongues. I think that's still available to the church today. But if you look at this verse... There's no mention after they're filled with the Spirit of them speaking in tongues. But you do see the fruit of the Spirit, which is joy. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit. You see that. What a contrast. What a contrast. Back in verse 45, there's people that are filled there too. Did you see that? In verse 45, there are people who are filled with envy. And what are they? They're miserable. They're used by Satan to persecute Paul and Barnabas. But we get to verse 52. What a contrast. Paul and Barnabas are not filled with envy. They're filled with the Spirit. And what do they have? Joy. Joy. In the face of persecution, no less. So this message that Paul shared for a Jewish audience, it was tailored by the Spirit for a Jewish audience. 
If you were to go up and share these things with someone who didn't know Old Testament scripture, they'd be like, what in the world are you talking about, right? They wouldn't know. The Jewish people knew exactly what he was talking about. But the point is, the core gospel still was saying, right? God loves us. God loves you. God has a plan and a purpose for your life, but sin separates us from God. And yet God did something about it. God solved the problem of sin by sending his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus died. He paid the price for our sin, rose again from the dead. And salvation is by faith in Christ's finished work on the cross. That's, that's the gospel message. Now, of course, it's a good idea to share some scripture to back it up. But, I mean, that was even less than, that was probably less than a minute. You can share the gospel with people. It's really simple. Just think of A, B, and C. A, admit you're a sinner. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. B, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin and rose again. And then C, call out to them. And that means pray. Call out to the Lord in prayer. Confess you're a sinner. Ask Jesus to forgive you. Ask him to come into your heart uh, to give you the power to turn away from your sin because you can't turn away from your sin by yourself. You need the Holy Spirit's presence in your life to do that. And then ask him to be the Lord of your life. Lord, I just want, to, I just want you to lead my life because you know what's best for my life. You know, the Bible says in Romans 10, verse 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I hope you're encouraged this morning. You can share the core gospel truths with anybody. And it's a universal message. It applies to everybody in less than five minutes. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. I'll have the worship team come on up too, by the way.